Hello and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is the DJ. How have you been, DJ? I've been good. I've been good. Uh, it's getting colder and colder. Yeah, wuss. <laughs> I like the cold. If, if I didn't have to worry about background noise, I'd be sitting outside in the in the cold. <laughs> but I oh, so my comfy chair's in here. <laughs> See, I love I, I I love winter, but there are some moments where you just go, "Nah, I can't stand it. No, I need the warmth. Desperately need the warmth and a hot soup." Yeah, hot soup's nice. Yeah. Now, speaking of hot things, <laughs> our first topic this week is. It's the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. <laughs> Come on, great here. segue there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the um, the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs with the uh, the crater in Chicxulub. I don't speak Mexican, so I don't like what is that Aztec Mayan, maybe something like that. I don't know how to pronounce that, but uh, it's on the Mexican Yucatan Peninsula and is most likely the site of the impact of the uh, meteorite that killed the dinosaurs. And it's also happened to have sent superheated seawater through the crust for more than a million years. Wow. <laughs> superheated. So, yeah. Well, part of this is that the impact of the rock really so much energy that it basically uh boiled the ocean in area in that area well, that eliminate well normally see here's the interesting thing normally when an asteroid hits the earth there'll be tsunamis and stuff but yeah there's not <laughs> well i wouldn't be surprised if there was evidence of tsunamis i'm not aware of any in relation to this impact but there would almost have to be if it landed in the water yeah but uh so they reckon that the the superheated seawater going through the crust transformed the rocks into new and exciting variants. So you can tell where you hit, uh, where an asteroid has hit the Earth because of uh, shocked quartz and melted spherules and other indications of uh, basically the impact. Well, what's interesting is that in this case, the, um, the impact layer is cut through with quartz and anhydrite, which are minerals that form in the presence of water. So rare so that, earth materials. Uh no, I don't think they're technically rare earth. Quartz is pretty common. But quartz at least is um if I'm remembering correctly, silica in the water uh, dissolved in the water precipitating out. So if I'm remembering correctly, quartz and opals are the same kind of rock but formed in slightly different ways. Yeah. So you can also see this sort of uh feature in uh say Yellowstone basically anywhere where hot water flows through the crust so replace so you might see so the, the places near old faithful would be pretty pretty much um quartz place uh places where quartz would be grown let's say yeah because um the geysers in yellowstone are mineral rich water flowing up from the uh well below the surface and they carry those minerals up where the minerals pre precipitate into uh sort of stalagmites but the most interesting part of this is that they reckon that the conditions in the hydrothermal system is what they're calling it could actually be the part of the sort of the starting point of life on earth well, that, that would change a lot of things. Uh, sorry not this oh. okay not this one in particular but these systems 
So yeah, the systems could be the source of early microbial life. Obviously not this one, because it killed 75% of life on Earth, which, <laughs> you know, couldn't have done that if there wasn't already life. So this, so this will be interesting. So this begs the whole question. So where did life actually start? So because everyone, because there was always that assumption that uh, um, that do, that um, life on, life on this planet started in Africa, kind of thing. Well, no, that's the um, assumption of human life. Okay. So human life descended from Africa and spread out across all the continents. So you can tell by looking at the genetic markers um, that Native Americans came across from Russia rather than from Europe because they shared genetic features with Eastern Russian and Asian populations. Yeah, yeah. They also they tried to compare the um, compare this to the lunar craters, and they suggest that Earth was heavily bombarded by asteroids about three point nine billion years ago. Yeah, and. The moon actually helps protect from future impacts as well, because the uh, the moon is enough to basically draw away some of the uh, some of the rocks that would impact on the Earth. And the theory is that by drawing it away, it protects the Earth and makes it more stable, thus more conducive to life. Yeah, but doesn't that depend on um, where the moon is located, though? Like, if it's like dead set if it's like depends on which continent it's it's facing let's say yeah like it's obviously going to have a um like if it was a tidally locked moon that happened to orbit at the same speed as the planet orbit as the planet rotated it would appear to be in the same spot over the planet all the time but the sphere of influence of the moon extends further than just where it is right now and that's what makes the, the free body problem so hard to come up with a conclusive answer to. Basically, orbital mechanics are kind of tricky, and it's hard to um, hard to do calculations, and there's like, calculations involving multiple bodies because of how they all interact with each other. Yeah. And it doesn't need to stop all of the asteroids, just enough of them. So the theory is that the Earth being in the Goldilocks zone, being... Uh, close enough to the sun to have liquid water, but not so close that it boils off. Being uh, Having a moon, which uh, attracts some of the asteroids that would hit the Earth, and also generates tides, which creates the intertidal zone, which is the perfect place for, uh, for life to move from the ocean to the land. Because it doesn't have to make the, the jump straight out of the ocean onto the land it can move into the intertidal zone like barnacles and basically slowly adapt to uh, to life on above water. So what questions do you reckon there are? you reckon this will pose a, a lot of questions? Like, for example, uh, so microbial life, so is microbes, is our microbial life um, evolving? Like, oh, no, actually, yeah, this could, this could, pose, this could pose a question on evolution. Yeah, so what I'm interested in is whether um, whether they could dig into more of these craters, because this one in particular, they didn't have any evidence of microbial life, but they have noticed in other situations, like under Yellowstone, microbial life uh, in those rocks. So whether the um, this means like they could go and dig up another asteroid crater and find out, well, meteorite crater, and find it, early life because a lot of uh, sort of single-celled microorganisms haven't changed that much 
they don't tend to uh, need to change as much, and if they're in a particular niche like that. Yeah, but where the like besides um besides a uh, chicks club, well, I'm not I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have five times record saying that. Um, what are the other meteorite creators are there? Uh, all over. There's uh, Wolf Creek in Australia, which is quite an impressive one. Uh, the other thing is, um, so I see a, a linked um, article on, at the bottom of this page. Erosion has erased most of Earth's impact craters, which is also true, and why the moon is a great, pla- a great place to study impacts, because the moon has been completely wrecked, and it doesn't have erosion to uh, basically wash away the evidence. Yeah. Uh, I see another link there to a 2.2 billion year old crater, the oldest uh, recorded impact, and that's Yarrabubba Crater in Western Australia. I just think it's really interesting how the impact of a asteroid creates so many interesting rock formations and uh, new um, yeah, new formations and minerals because it's imparting such a huge amount of energy and pressure to the rocks around it. Yeah. And in this case, also carrying the liquid water, well, superheated water through the the crust. So does that mean that we can we can now safely say that dinosaurs didn't really the dinosaurs didn't really die from a meteor from meet from a meteorite, but it died from the effects of the meteorite. Well, that's always been true. The meteorite didn't go and like take out each individual dinosaur. <laughs> it just happened to basically set the world on fire. Yep. <laughs> I don't want to set the world on fire. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm like James Earl Jones now, like, no. But, um, yeah, this is going to be pretty interesting. I wonder how many um evolutionary theories are going to be coming out of this one, though. I think the big change for that would be finding um finding evidence of life under craters. Yeah, and to be honest, I think you're more likely to find. I don't think the original crater is likely to still exist in a form recognizable to humans. So you can see there that's a 2.2 billion year old um, crater in Yarrabubba, which is about half the age of the Earth. I think anything older than that's probably mostly eroded. And it's going to be interesting how um, that how water is also part of the contributing factors when creating life, like as um, one of the astrobiologists was saying that um, ancient environments that provided water, chemical building blocks and energy are very promising candidates for hosting life's origins and early evolution. Yeah, I also wonder if possibly there's, say, short-lived colonies of life. Like, we only know of one situation where life arose, Earth. But I wonder if there's any possibility of say mars mars doesn't have a, a liquid core so there's no tectonic action to uh to heat any liquid water on the in the crust and cause these sorts of formations so you'd only see these formations underneath an impact crater which well we don't know how hard it is to make uh to make life but i wonder if you could find life under <clears throat> say, half a dozen different times that life has developed under craters on Mars, say. I bet or something you know, ridiculously sci-fi like that. Yeah. Although it would be in- pretty interesting. I wonder how many extinction events that followed after the collision 
yeah, and it's entirely possible that there's a planet out there where a uh, impact event wiped out all life, but also seeded the building blocks for the next development of life. Probably not here because uh, Earth isn't old enough to have hosted a previous generation. And it's also pretty clear that there was no previous uh, high-tech civilization. And you can tell that because humans are great at extracting uh, extracting resources from the crust. And we don't see any evidence of previous life forms doing that. Yeah. So even the, even the team from Time Team wouldn't even do it. Yeah, so going by the development cycle of life, if something previously existed on Earth within the fossil record, we would see that it had extracted massive amounts of iron and coal and everything and created their own civilization that was then wiped out by whatever event, then we developed and took over. But we wouldn't be able to find have easy access to iron and coal just under the surface because the previous civilization would have already beaten us to it. But uh, we are digressing a bit. Yep. So speaking of uh, archaeology, our next topic tonight <laughs> is about some video game archaeology. God, you're pulling out some beautiful segues, Professor. <laughs> so this uh, topic, the Video Game History Foundation published an article the other day about some uh, video game historians. So the Video Game History Foundation got their hands on uh, archives from the late Chris Oberth, who was a game developer who passed away in 2012. Uh, he's known for Anteater, an arcade title, Ardy the Aardvark, uh, Winter <laughs> Games on the Commodore 64. So he's um, when he passed away... Uh, in 2012, he left a bunch of archives of old data, which were then passed on to the foundation in 2020. So the story goes that he had piles of stuff dating back to the late 70s. And while they were cataloging it, they discovered uh, discs that had names that were not like made no sense because these games never existed. So they found Nintendo Hot Rod Taxi Final. There's no title... There's no game titled Hot Rod Taxi. Uh, Chris did work on the NES. He made American Gladiators. But it's, uh, the main topic of the article is that he mentioned a game for the NES called Days of Thunder. So there were two games, uh, Days of Thunder, one produced by Chris and one produced by uh, Beam Software. So Chris at Mindscape never ended up publishing uh, Days of Thunder. So this was the 1990s edition. Yeah, yeah, based on a movie. So they um they found a bunch of uh, source code on the disc, compiled it, built it up. But unfortunately, it was fairly basic, uh, basically a tech demo. Ah, it would have been awesome if they if they rebuilt it and sell it. <laughs> yeah, it would have been great if they, like they were just able to find this one disc that was already prepared. But unfortunately, not. So they found. 40 floppy disks containing hard drive backups, unfortunately done in split form with encryption. So each disk had a part of the archive. So they had to recover as much data as possible from the disks. These are 5.25 floppy disks. These are decades old. <laughs> really, uh, I'm honestly a bit surprised they were able to recover as much as they could. 
Yeah, it brings me back some good old memories of the good old floppy disks. Good times. Back in the days when they actually flopped. Yeah. Back in the days when um, computers were big, big machines. and Ah, they still weren't that big. So they tried to run the backup program because the disks were labeled PC Tools Backup, uh, which made it clear that they needed to use that software. So they tried to use that software to in DOSBox to pull the data out of the archive. Unfortunately, DOSBox wasn't able to do that straight away. So they decided to go and dig through the data and understand the data format, which is not a uh, an insignificant task. <clears throat> How long did it take for them to do the whole process? Uh, you know, I didn't see a, um, a time frame, but considering they got it in early 2020 and they've got a tweet here from February, and it's now June, probably three to four months. Whoa. Yeah. I was expecting, like, you know, with modern technology and how fast um, you can you can reclaim data, I thought it would take weeks. At this current no. It's, a, it's not something you can automate. It's a very labor-intensive process. So they figured out that the data is actually fairly simple to interpret, uh, but... You still got to go in and dig in and figure it out before you can actually go and write a program that can translate it for you. So generating, um, they managed to generate a list of files, found the source code, which they reckon was for Days of Thunder. Unfortunately, this was still compressed using a proprietary algorithm. Oh. Encrypted and compressed, just to make it even harder. That's like, it's like, I bet you Chris right now must be going, ha, try and unlock this one, you fools. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to go and just leave a hard drive labeled like millions of dollars in Bitcoin and <laughs> just have it all encrypted to hell and you just unzip it and it's a, a recrawl. <laughs> so luckily the encryption was uh, using a generic key. And they could either use a custom DOS box, which is an emulator for DOS programs, and they'd have to then reverse engineer it and figure it out and build their own software to basically run the run the backup program so they could extract it. Or they could reverse engineer it and write all new software to interpret it. Uh, but uh, then they took the, the easy way out. Yep. And someone who had vintage hardware built them a computer that could run this software. God bless that man. Yeah. And so luckily, none of the data was corrupted. Thank God. So unfortunately, sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, so I take it both of these um, steps that they were trying to figure out what to do next must have have a big um, drawback with destroying the data completely. Not if you take an image of it first. Standard procedure in data forensics is to make an image of the disk, basically a one-to-one copy, and then do all of your dirty work on the disk. That way, oh, I'm sorry, on the image. That way, if you screw up the image, you should have it backed up, but you're also not affecting the original uh, content, which uh, has implications, especially in legal forensics. So unfortunately, there was no ROM files, and they had four hard drive petitions to search through. They found a... uh, one particular directory that they thought was promising, containing source code, tools for developing the game, uh, assemblers, 
basically everything they needed to build the source code of the game. Ooh. Yeah, so they produced the, um, the the source code. Yeah, they used a program that's still around called Romex, which communicates over serial to uh, to a development cartridge and directly writes data to the programming character memory. Which basically, the inside the NES, there's two ROMs: program RAM and character RAM. Program RAM is for source code. Character RAM is for the sprites. So, much more re- um, reverse engineering later, they were able to then develop a functioning ROM of the game, including having to figure out what uh, what the unique tile formats it was using, how it rendered graphics. This is a. Dr- it must be a dream come true once you uh, once you make all that. Yeah, it must be like being able to unpack a, a disc like this and find all of the data you need must be insane. Unfortunately, he was still missing a, a big chunk of the art to begin with, and then it turned up. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so they've rebuilt this game from the scraps of this guy's hard drives, <laughs> and created a game that never, uh, never saw the light of day. So basically nobody has ever played this game and now they're going to publish buildable source code and publishing a print run of the game compatible with the original NES. But wouldn't uh, but wouldn't that um be uh wouldn't that be cause for concern in terms of uh, fair use and copyright and stuff though? Ah, they did get permission from uh from the family. Okay. So the the limited run of uh physical cartridges is actually going to go towards um, his widow. <clears throat> what about the um, other? What, what about the uh, movie company? Um, that's a good question because, because it is based on a game. Sorry, yeah. I was going to say that if the movie company cuts wind of it, they'll be like, "Ooh, what, someone's using our IP. Summon the lawyers." That's a good question. So it's uh, by Paramount, who are still around, and it features some big actors. So. Yeah, Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, hmm. I mean, like, it's, I mean, I would love to see, to get a, a copy of that game and play it on an emulator. Okay, uh, by the way, we do not endorse anyone else playing with, with an emulator. No, we but... don't endorse emulation as piracy. Emulation is perfectly legal as long as you own a copy of the game on disc. But yeah, I would, I would love to have a copy of this game and play the heck out of that game. <laughs> Even to racing games, I, I play the odd um, Gran Turismo and uh, Need for Speed. I feel like being a, a racing game from the you know early nineties is probably not going to hold up too well. Yeah, but still, it's it's good for the nostalgia. Yeah, I mean, it's an NES game from the early nineties. They didn't have a huge amount to work with, but I'm sure it would be a hell of a lot of fun to check out. And you know, when they do actually publish the um publish the source code, I might actually give it a go. Can Nintendo will step in? No, uh, Nintendo doesn't really have a um, have an interest in this, as far as I know. There have been no one for taking down companies that host ROMs of their games, but um, Nintendo might not actually own the copyright to this at all, because it was never released. Mm. So that means it never had to be... Uh, they never licensed it with Nintendo, which... Um, the Nintendo seal of quality basically just says that they licensed the game with Nintendo. Um, they, uh, yeah, so I'm hoping they don't 
get get taken down by Paramount for this. There, interestingly, but, with Days of, yeah. oh, interesting with Days of Thunder, there is a 2011 version of this game as well. Yeah, I saw uh, on Wikipedia. There's a version for the PS3. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how they how that's gonna hold up though. I mean, it's the same like it's part of Days of Thunder franchise kind of thing. Um, I'll be honest, it probably holds up better because it'll have better physics, better graphics. But then you can't beat the nostalgia of playing a, an original NES game. Yeah. And plus, this game, if, if I recall, hasn't been published, so that's that's the added bonus. Yeah. In fact, um, I might even... like I have no idea how much a, a cartridge for Days of Thunder by... Uh, uh, who was it the, who did the other one? It was for the 2011 game? No, the 1991. Bit of a brain fart. There we go. Beam Software. Yeah. I'd be interested to see what uh, how how it compares to Beam's version because there seems to be a, a lot of situations back then where uh, two different developers would get contracted out to make a game and either one of them would get published and the other would just vanish into obscurity like this or both would get published and they'd be completely different experiences. So the the June and June 2 games from the early 90s I believe were both movie licensed games. One of them's a um, point and click adventure type game uh, with RTS elements. The other's basically the grandfather of RTS. Yeah. You know, this is the sort of uh, technological deep dive. I recommend checking out this article because it goes in a lot more detail. But it's a sort of archaeological, technological deep dive that really gets me going. So. From a game developer's perspective, do you think that we should see we should we want to see more of these like um, events happening? I'd love to, because every game out there that never got released is somebody's baby. Somebody put a lot of effort into making games, and you know, ninety nine percent of them are going to be crap, and that's why they weren't released. But every now and then, you'll get a game that was cancelled just you know months before release, like this one. And it's actually a competent game, just never got got a chance to shine. And plus, releasing an old style game does bring the, bring out the nostalgia crowds. Yeah, the nostalgia crowd will definitely be into this. Probably uh, popular among NES owners and uh, well, racing fans, especially racing fans of the period who uh, would have been into the original Days of Thunder. Yeah, but um, anyway, we should move on. What do you have to tell us about the Chinese theatres without uh, an epic segue? <laughs> oh, oh, I don't get an epic segue? Oh. No, I've been trying. I just couldn't come up with a good one for this one. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if, uh, speaking of movie related. <laughs> um, yeah, so... that would have been reasonable. <laughs> so more than 20% of Chinese cinemas were surveyed. And they say that they're very likely to close in the near future because of the coronavirus. So is that 40% of cinemas surveyed or they surveyed 40% of cinemas in China? Uh, 40% of cinemas in China. Okay, so 40% of the cinemas there could close because of this. Yeah, yeah. And because and thanks to the coronavirus, um, many th- movie theaters have remained dark. So it's now 130 days since January 23rd. And is that the last time Chinese people were allowed to go to the movies? Yep, the last time. 
Although here's the problem though. So whilst after after this whole coronavirus, um, some may reopen, but the others might just close due to bankruptcy. Yeah, I saw another article the other day. A um, I think they were estimating sixty percent of sixty uh, percent of companies in Dubai will shut down after this. Whoa! Oh man, that's got. I've heard that um in Australia, a couple a lot of gyms are going to be closing down because of this. Yeah, I don't know what um what the gyms are, are doing, but you know they haven't been bringing in any revenue for what three months now. Yeah, actually, um, what are they saying? Like, uh, gyms might even might might have to um evacuate as well and get demolished as well. And the saddest part is some of the gyms are are like community staples kind of thing. That's the saddest part of it. So yeah, the Chinese Film Association and Chinese Film Distribution Association conducted a survey of 187 theaters at the end of April, with the participation from 20 major chains including Wanda. Heng Dian and Dadi. Great names. Um, it's found that as many as 42% of the participating cinemas believe that they're very likely to close in the near future. Just 10% say that they would undergo changes in ownership but continue to operate, while 28% saying that they were waiting for further decisions from central management of, on their fate. That's insane. <laughs> that is just a colossal, colossal change in the culture there. Oh. I feel so. I, 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 can you imagine being one of those people working for that cinema, and you and you're one of those people waiting for further decisions? Man, I hate to be that guy. Yeah, if you don't know that you're going to, if you're going to keep your job, it's very stressful. Oh man. So I, I, I know we, I know it's going to be hard to say this, but uh, does that mean they get to find better cinemas? <laughs> I don't know. A Chinese cinema is known for being bad. I don't know. They're not as bad as Western cinemas, um, I think. I hope. You know I reckon they I talk in the cinema like Western people do. Or, or the, uh, the more mobile phones. Oh, God. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> awful. You don't deserve cinemas. <laughs> so, uh, it's funny, though. So, those figures were tallied, um, previously disclosed by Asian Cinema Investment and Industry Consultant. And they basically said China suffered the permanent closure of at least 2,300 cinemas through the first two months of COVID-19. Uh, this, this equals a loss of 12,000 screens, which is nearly 20% of China's theatrical release capacity. Whoa! Yeah. And this will, like, I haven't heard about Western cinemas having to close, but this will absolutely hit the, uh, the Asian market. Like, you hear about movies that don't do well in the West, but do well in Asia. I wonder if we'll see any, um, like, will China have as big a push to get uh, Western movies over if there's no cinemas to show them in? Yeah, I, I, I find it amazing, though. Like, 12,000 cinemas and uh, screens and 2,300. That's a lot of jobs gone. Um, so China's top administrative body said that last month the cinemas in the region with low coronavirus risk can reopen with reduced capacity and daily disinfecting uh, measures, but operators are still awaiting permission from local authorities. Uh, these approvals were expected to hit after the end of the so-called two sessions meeting in the Chinese. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Yeah, so there's no green lighting for in the end. So, okay. so the report's estimating that if the cinemas were to reopen, it would take six months for revenue to rebuild. And that would mean a year-on-year fall in box office of 66% from last year's 64.3 billion renminbi, which is 9 billion US, uh, to 21.8 billion renminbi, which is 3.5 billion. So basically, they need to have a lot of box office movies, like hits, in order to recoup. Yeah. And another thing, if they were to reopen um, in October... This would cut the revenue this year's revenues by ninety one percent to just eight hundred and ten million. I mean, that's still a lot of money. <laughs> I know it's not as much money, but especially considering the size of the population, though. Yeah, and Chinese cinema is huge in terms of revenue. Like, in terms of revenue, like you play a good American movie in China, it would sell a lot of money. Yeah. Um. Well, but here's the other. Here's the problem, though. While these, you can also attribute to Netflix and streaming services for this downfall. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a boost in streaming services after this. Yeah, so they were saying, so one, one of the founders of China Market, Market Research Group uh, believes a major challenge will, will be the growing strength of China's movie online, online movie segment, which is very competitive, such as uh, with, with Tencent Video, for example. Like he said that uh, subscriptions were cheap at around $2, $2 a month for a basic package, while movie theaters of 10 sell for 20 bucks. That's pretty cheap. So one person's pre- so he's also predicting that more pain for cinemas if film companies start to launch direct-to-digital offerings and charge higher prices as well. I don't know if that's going to work out. Charging higher prices for, um, like, your, there's already an economic hit from the Rona. And I don't know if charging higher prices is going to get the remaining customers in the door. Yeah, but the online market is pretty competitive, though. I mean, like, it's it's like um, if you don't like Netflix, you can try Hulu. If you don't like Hulu, you can try Amazon. Yeah. And there's also the other problem why cinemas are not having um, enough people is because there's no new films coming out with the with, because productions are not... Productions are not happening because of the whole restrictions, which makes sense. Though I mean, what was it the other day with uh, Lord of the Rings? Um, they had to wait for two weeks before they resumed productions. Yeah, they did. They, um, I mean, Lord of the the Lord of the Rings uh, series. Yes, um, I was thinking of the the reunion, uh, and yeah. I was like, they did that online anyway. Why would they have to wait? But yeah. <laughs> But yeah, um, what else did they say? What else did they say? Um, so they said that one, one guy said that um, they hear about 20% of local productions have begun or resumed physical work with the balance postponed or in financial difficulty because of the outbreak. And so that complicates the timing and recovery of cinemas as well. 
must-see films will be needed like never before to bolster the industry recovery and a huge number of concession stands. <laughs> Sales. Yeah, I'm... Oh, well, this is if this is the way things go. It's the way things go. They just make a, you know, we'll all just start watching Netflix instead of going to the movies. To be fair, the uh, millennials were doing that anyway. Yep. So he's basically saying the predictions are dire, but I'm optimistic. Uh, says Chris Fenton, a former motion product motion picture president and author of Feeding the Dragon. And he points out the Chinese government's desire to have a world class film industry and largest market. And he ends by saying, plus, the Chinese have embraced movie going into the cultural fabric of society. It's a habit they are rabid about. That that urge to visit cinemas regularly has has not waned. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Would you say would you say that's the same would you say the same thing here as well though? I mean Um I mean we didn't have the a lockdown as intense as China did. I don't know what um where we'll go from here, but I think you know, China's coming up from the coronavirus. I think we need a few more months before we can, well, at least another month before we can really compare the two situations. Yeah, that's true. And like, and like the um, what, like they said, like there's not much new films coming out. Like, what's the newest? What's the next film that's going to be coming out thanks to the corona? Um, the new Christopher Nolan movie. Like, will it be a hit? Yeah. After the coronavirus, I don't know, I'm not sure. So. Yeah. And plus, and plus, um, TV shows are uh t- TV networks are kind of waning as well. So everyone's using Netflix. Yep. Yeah, but, but it's gonna millennials be- just don't want to watch TV anymore. Nah, TV's for women. They want to play video games. <laughs> so what are you playing, DJ? I've been playing um uh, MK11. Um, I know it's a, it, it's it's a it's MK11, and yes, I have been playing it for for playing it for weeks and weeks, but. A couple of weeks ago, um, they released a, a new expansion called MK11 Aftermath, which is um, a new expansion. And What's the deal? Uh, they've int- so they've introduced a new story and a couple of new skins as well. And the story is basically set straight after the ending of MK11. So and you and you try and you go through the same journey of what happens in the end. I'm not going to spoil much. I'm gonna keep it for keep keep it for future future use. So, are there any uh, new characters? Um, there are a couple. There are a couple of new characters. You have Shiva, an old uh, MK favorite. You also have Fujin, another MK favorite, and for the first time, Robocop is in MK11 and complete with the original voice actor play uh, playing as Robocop. So now we've got Arnie as the Terminator, Robocop. Uh, we just need Judge Dredd and a couple of other Arnie characters, and we've pretty much filled out the uh, the '90s action hero roster. <laughs> is um, what's his name? Die Hard. McLean. Nah. Yeah, is he in there? <laughs> nah. There are apparently I've heard rumors though that uh, they they might come in. They might bring in Ash from Evil Dead. But that would be a bit of a stretch, though. Yeah, I know. Um, damn it, no, I can't remember his name either. The guy who plays Ash isn't too um too enthusiastic about coming back to do more Evil Dead. Oh, uh, he said he, he. Well, he's still thinking about it, if I recall. Okay, I remember we had a topic um after Evil Dead the show was cancelled, and I was pretty sure he 
basically said he'd never do it again. Okay. Yeah, I might have to. I, I might have a look into it, but uh, <laughs> but with uh, more Combat Eleven, so it's it has some very interesting story elements to it, and yeah, there it, it brings on the element of nobody really stays dead in Mortal Kombat. <laughs> um, they've also int- introduced a couple of other stuff like uh, stage fatalities, for example, and they've also introduced brought bring brought back the friendship. So uh, for those who are, for, for those who are curious, uh, the friendships were a big thing back in the Mortal Kombat three days. So they one car- whenever they go finish him, instead of performing fatality, they perform like an act of friendship. <laughs> so instead of killing the guy, you just do a fist bump. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, hang a second, I might. Oh, please, sec. Here's a compilation um, clip of the uh, friendships. <laughs> Some are pretty okay. good. Some are pretty weird, but they're 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 all good. Fun. I mean, it's just basically just like the Hello Kitty version of um of Mortal Kombat. Yep, pretty much, pretty much. Uh, the biggest flaw with this game, I would say, is the microtransactions. They're still a thing. Um, you also have to grind the grind more now, and. Some and some of the um, but some of the combos don't really um are not responsive. So sometimes you do a two hit combo, expecting a five hit combo, and it it just throws you like ah. Okay. Um, I would give this game a four, a three point five. Out, oh, actually, no, not three. Four out of five nerdy beanies. What have you been playing, Professor? I've been playing um Crisis Warhead. Crisis Warhead is the sort of spin-off of crisis you um take the role of uh, psycho who is one of the side characters from the original game you get to uh basically fill out the time that psycho spent on the island between when he was separated from nomad um after rescuing the hostage and when they meet up again at the end of the game so is this one based before the first crisis game or uh, or in the middle of crisis one and crisis two it's actually during Crisis One, so you um end up uh sort of split split up from your team a bunch in Crisis. So for this one, there's quite a long section where uh, you split up from Psycho. So they took this chance to fill in the story. Basically, uh, um, basically Psycho went on to do a separate mission while Nomad was dealing with the the um tank battalion and the mines and all of that and it ties in nicely because the uh the, at the end of crisis where you run into psycho again and you're like where have you been and he's like you wouldn't believe it <laughs> yeah he's um i think the sort of the weakest point is that it's shorter and has less variety so it's so, grindy. sorry it's grindy no just that there's uh you see less environments. So in the first one, you like you battle through the islands, you fight mine in a mine. There's aliens. You explore the alien spaceship. In this one, you're mostly just on the island. And um, there's some really nice action sequences though, like the uh, the one where you're riding a train with a captured alien, and you're trying to protect that from the Koreans so that you can capture the alien for the Americans. But uh, I thought the it was weaker because it just didn't 
not as much exploration. So it all kind of feels a bit like you've done it before. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, the There's also less vehicle sections. So in the first game, you have a scene where you ride in a tank battalion and later on you get to ride in a sort of a helicopter, uh, a VTOL. Yeah. But you don't do either of that in this game. Um, I'm just trying to remember. I think, no, the only vehicle section is sort of driving section is when you're uh, racing away from the Koreans with the pilot you've rescued, which is also one of the most painful parts in realism mode. So in normal difficulty, you end up, um, you have a sort of link to the gunner seat, thanks to your, basically your exosuit, I presume, and you can control the gun from the driver's seat. So there's a sequence where you're racing down a highway with a a grenade launcher on the roof, defending a a pilot who's taken a Humvee. But for some dumb reason, the pilot and you are in different cars, and so that means in realism mode where you can't remote control the guns. Oh, you have no defense. No. Yeah, you got to stop, pop out, shoot things, pop back in and drive off. But the the plot is much... Well, oh, not the plot, sorry. The characters are much better. It's more gra- uh, So it's more grounded or...? No, just that the Nomad was very much a... Um, well, he, uh, he's very much a player avatar psycho actually has a character to him okay uh so how many nerdy beanies would you get this one out of? oh how did i forget my favorite vehicle scene in this one actually oh. a hovercraft race <laughs> really the, yeah the koreans have um have this alien in a, a capsule that they're uh gonna use for evil science stuff or whatever and because they're uh, evil koreans you've got to stop them so there's a scene where you race, race the uh, Koreans who are carrying the alien, like towing up behind a, um, a hovercraft, and you're in your own hovercraft racing along after them while everything explodes and <laughs> aliens attack. Oh, that must have been fun. Yeah, so, you know, I give it four out of five. It, um, yeah, it's not as good, I think it's not as good as Crisis, but it is still very good. Just, I'm just I'm just having a look at the uh, hovercraft race, and I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah, it's a great little action sequence. Yep. So on to the shoutouts. Um, on the 30th of May, the Crew Dragon Demo Two mission successfully launched into space, carrying Doug Hurley and Bob. Bob, have you given me the? Yeah, Bob Benkin. You did give me the names, DJ. So uh, Doug and Bob are the first. Uh, the first humans to fly from from the United States on an American-built rocket since the the last shuttle flight in 2011. And, you know, I'm not into the whole American uh, stuff that they're going on about, but it was very exciting to watch that happen. Oh, yeah. And uh, the two best parts are Bob's stupid grin, because he's always so excited. <laughs> and Doug hitting his head on the door, getting off the spaceship. <laughs> it looked painful. Oh, I, I will say this: the suits look really cool. Yeah, it's a very sleek, modern design for the suits and the interior of the Dragon capsule. I was watching. Um, I, I was watching a YouTube video about it, and they were saying that um, they were updating. This is basically an update of the current from the old space 
suits and they can communicate there with the headsets looks like the it looks like the cool um sci-fi sci-fi one yeah it looks super cool and i'm still not convinced of the um you know the effectiveness of the touch screens i'm more convinced than i was but i'm a bit worried about how well it'll control in uh you know if the shit hits the fan yep just because it's hard to control a touch screen in a moving vehicle but the good news is they have all of the sort of critical functions duplicated on a uh, physical button panel so uh the space uh one of the one of the uh commanders was saying uh spacex spacex dragon we're going for launch let's light this candle oh it lit <laughs> apparently that was an old quote from what i've gathered okay so um the next shout out is to michelangelis who passed away at 76 on the same day he's the british actor who voiced two decades of thomas the tank engine he replaced ringo Starr as the narrator of thomas the tank engine and friends in 1991 he died of a heart attack at his home in berkshire and not to overshadow him at all, I just think it's nuts that Ringo Starr was a uh, Thomas the Tank Engine narrator. <laughs> that must have been a very, very cool job. <laughs> yeah. So, on the 1st of June 2020, Total Recall turned 30. Based on the Philip K. Dick short story, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, Philip's uh, stories tend to have titles that are a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> And the movies aren't always uh, the best adaptations, but they're always fun. So this is the one where Arnie Schwarzenegger gets memories implanted into his brain and can't remember whether he was, uh, whether it was part of the experience of, basically you can pay to have memories of a holiday implanted into your brain. And he can't remember, like can't tell whether he was actually, uh, actually did these things or whether it's part of the package. It was one of the most expensive films made at the time of its release, and uh, it was—it's funny how they they picked Arnie as the everyday man. <laughs> like, yeah, <wow. laughs> that's an interesting point. <laughs> like, when was the last time you see an everyday man? It's a, a gigantic bodybuilder. <laughs> yeah, obviously, aren't getting out enough, DJ. No. <laughs> Uh, but there was also a story where Arnie would get a lot of injuries from that movie. Like, he would get uh, cut wrists uh, and broken bones. Like, every day he would get injured from that movie. Okay. Oh, and by the way, for the uh, that that Hurley quote I said earlier on, it was a, it, he was paraphrasing a famous comment uttered by other than Launchpad in 1961 by Alan Shepard, the first American flown into space. So, uh, the remembrances this week... On the 2nd of June, 1785, Jean-Paul de Guadamaves passed away. <laughs> Jean-Paul was a French mathematician who, in 1740, published a work on analytical geometry. He used analytical geometry without the aid of differential calculus, because it wasn't invented yet, to find tangent sim asymptotes and various singular points of an algebraic curve. He also gave the proof of... Uh, Descartes' rule of science, which is still used today. It's not clear whether Descartes ever proved the rule of science, but Newton considered it to be obvious. Of course, Newton would. Newton was a bloody genius. <laughs> so, Dennis Diderot called John Paul a profound geometrician at his funeral. He died in Paris. On the 2nd of June, 1970, 
Albert Lamoureux, the French filmmaker, producer, and writer of award-winning short films, who invented the board game Risk, originally called La Conquête du Monde, du monde The Conquest of the World, in 1957. Until the Parker Brothers stole that game. <laughs> he probably sold it. He, um, his best-known work is The Red Balloon, just a single one, not 99 of them, which earned him the Palme d'Or Grand Prize at Cannes and an Oscar for Best screen- Original Screenplay. He died in a helicopter crash crash in Garage while filming Levent des Amours, The Lover's Wind, during a helicopter tour in 1970 at the age of 48. On the 2nd of June, 1990, Rex Harrison. Sir Reginald Carey Harrison was an English actor of stage and screen. He began his career in 1924 and first performed on West End in 1936 in French Without Tears. He won a Tony Award for playing Henry VIII in Anne of, of the Thousand Days in 1949, and got a second Tony for playing Professor Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady in 1957. Now, Rex was also the um, original actor behind Dr. Doolittle. He was not by any objective standards a singer, the, um, so they wrote music for long periods of speaking to the music. But he still got the Academy Award for Best Original Song for Talk to the Animals from Dr. Doolittle. Can't have been much competition there. <laughs> Although, he, one could say he could talk to the animals. Walk with the animals. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Never! <laughs> so he died in Manhattan at 82. Due to pancreatic cancer. Yes. And on the 2nd of June 2017... Peter Salas passed away. Peter was the voice of Wallace from uh, Wallace and Gromit. He played Norman Clegg in Last of the Summer Wine from its inception until its final episode, uh, which is 295 episodes. He appeared in Danger Man in the episode Find and Destroy in the Doctor Who serial The Ice Warriors. So while he was a student in 1983, Nick Parker wrote to him asking if he would voice Wallace. Salas agreed to do so for a donation of £50 to his favourite charity. His last role as Wallace was in 2010 in Wallace and Gromit's World of Invention. He died of natural causes in Denville Hall, London at the age of 96. For famous birthdays, on the 2nd of June 1774, William Lawson, the English-born Australian explorer, landowner, grazier and politician. Along with uh, Gregory Blacksland and William Wentworth, he pioneered the first successful crossing of the Blue Mountains by European settlers. Yes, the uh, the Great Dividing Range was known for a long time as being essentially impassable. After the crossing, the three men were rewarded with four square kilometres of land each by Governor Macquarie. How much? It doesn't seem like a lot. You know, you could do a lot with four square kilometres. So he selected his land um, in the Bathurst Settlement, where he became commandant. In 1821, he discovered the Kajigong River and explored Mudgee and its outlying regions. He was born in Middlesex. Yeah, it must have been... Um, you'd have to have a good sense of adventure to be going out exploring the Blue Mountains back then. Yeah, there must have been a lot of risk as well. Like, mountaineering isn't as advanced as it, as it is now. Yeah. So on the 2nd of June, 1904, Johnny Weissmuller was born. He's known for playing Tarzan in the films of the 30s and 40s and holding the best competitive swimming records of the 20th century. 
He won five Olympic medal, gold medals for swimming and one bronze for water polo in the 1920s. He was the first to break the one-minute barrier for the 100-meter freestyle and the first to swim 440-yard freestyle in under five minutes. He won 52 U.S. national championships, set more than 50 world records, and was apparently undefeated in official competition for his entire career. That, I, I don't think Michael Phelps can beat that. No, this guy was insane. <laughs> this is the peak of human performance. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, uh, while Edgar Rice Burroughs, the author of Tarzan, was happy with Weissmuller, he didn't like the depiction of a Tarzan who barely spoke English, which makes sense because who's he going to learn it from? Still, oh, Weissmuller is the uh, the definitive Tarzan. And as soon as he um, finished being Tarzan, he became Jungle Jim in Colombia. He made thirteen. He went on to make thirteen more Jungle Jim films. And let's not forget, he was the guy behind the iconic Tarzan yodel. Yes, <laughs> which I will not demonstrate because I don't need my neighbors kicking in the door to find out who's being murdered. <laughs> he was born in Zabadfalva <laughs> or Friedorf. I'll I think I stick with Friedorf. I can say that one. Oh come on, Professor, do it. <laughs> Do the Tarzan yell! <laughs> no, I will not. There are some lines I will not, not cross. <laughs> On the 2nd of June, 1961, Liam Cunningham was born. He's known for playing Davos Seaworth in Game of Thrones. He's been nominated for the London Film Critics Circle Award, the British Independent Film Award, and has won two Irish Film and Television Awards. His, um, he came to international prominence for his role as Captain Ryan in dog soldiers, and shared a BAFTA with Michael Fassbender for Pitch Black Heist. Cunningham was Philip Siegel's first choice to portray the eighth Doctor in the TV movie of Doctor Who, but was vetoed by the Fox executives. He would have played a good Doctor. Yeah. Oh, I've got the hiccups now. Oh. <laughs> he was born in East Wall, Dublin. <laughs> okay, I think I'm better. So, yeah, you can find lists on the internet of various provenance of um, potential doctors, including people who you just wouldn't ever think could be it. And apparently at one point they must have considered just about everyone in England. So on the 4th of June, 1950, Cliff Stoll was born. Cliff is an American astronomer, author, teacher, and the very first person to discover a case of state-sponsored computer crime. So he wrote a book about the called The Cookie's Egg, about the investigation he performed in 1986 while working at um, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab and the uh, Berkeley University. So what basically what happened was he got a job working as the an administrator on the computer systems, which back in the day were these big bulky things. And on one of his first days, if I remember correctly, one of the other guys asked him to see if he could figure out why the there was a discrepancy in the billing system since you had to pay for your time on the computer. Mm. And he traced that back all the way to some German hackers who were being paid by the KGB. But the um, the government and police didn't believe him. They were like, the computer crime can't happen. So it, you know, it took him ages to get the um, to get people to actually listen to him. But Stoll basically pioneered digital forensics. And it's a really great book. Even if you're not that into computers, it's pretty well explained. And it um, 
it's basically just a great detective story. Could you say he was a he was a white hat hacker? Yeah, kinda. Because at one point he did follow the um, he did follow the hackers into systems that you know he probably shouldn't have been accessing. So basically, the um, the hackers broke into the computers at uh, Berkeley and then used that as a starting point to hop to other systems around the U.S. So Cliff then uh, got into it and followed them through to the other systems and found out that like this was serious business. These are like government contractors and nuclear stuff. And yeah. So uh, in 1995, Cliff called e-promise baloney, which is a bit ironic considering he now uses e-commerce to sell Klein bottles, which are these really interesting geometric shapes. And he, um, he stores his inventory under his house and built a miniature robot forklift that he drives under his house picks up boxes of stuff and brings it back to him. <laughs> it's like, what, you, what, you couldn't even buy one? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, Cliff sounds like a really fun guy. Yep. <laughs> and there's uh, videos of the, um, the forklift system on YouTube. He's also part of the Computer File YouTube channel. Or well, he's a fre- frequent guest on it anyway. So he was born in Buffalo, New York. And on to the events of interest. On the 2nd of June, 1835, P.T. Barnum and his circus started their first tour of the United States. Uh, Phineas T. Barnum and founded the greatest show on earth, and then uh, Barnum and Bailey's Circus. Barnum and Bailey's Greatest Show on Earth, and finally, the Ringling Brothers' Barnum and Bailey's Circus. <laughs> Just couldn't settle on a name. But um, Barnum became a showman in 1835. He went to New York and showed his first exhibit, blind elderly black woman who he claimed was 160 years old the woman died the next year aged about 80 so he's credited with coining the adage there is a sucker born every minute but no proof can be found of him saying this uh he was portrayed by hugh jackman in the movie the greatest showman the watch that is it good uh i've i've, I've heard te- i've heard stories saying like it's a good movie to watch you should check it out so okay i'll give it a shot so on the 2nd of June 1910, Charles Rolls, co-founder of Rolls-Royce, became the first man to make a non-stop double crossing of the English Channel by plane. Basically, he flew from near Dover to across the English Channel to France, decided it was a bit shit and went home. <laughs> he reached an altitude of 900 feet and a speed of quite 40 miles an hour. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty, pretty fast there. <laughs> Yeah, over 3,000 people witnessed the event, after which he was carried through town shoulder high. On the 2nd of June 2003, Europe launched its first voyage to another planet. The ESA launched the Mars Express probe from the Baikonur Space Center in Kazakhstan. The spacecraft was launched at 2345 local time using a Soyuz FG rocket. So the Mars Express was the first Russian-launched probe to successfully make it out of low Earth orbit since the Soviet Union fell. But uh, that's all we have for tonight. So DJ, where can they find us? You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. All of our details will be in our show notes. Uh, they can find us also on that'snotcanon.com. We have our old episodes and other That's Not Canon website, uh, podcasts, such as Love Stranger. 
very interesting story about romance um, with strangers. Well, it's not even just romance. It's basically the Craigslist misconnections board. Ah. Like, it doesn't have to be romance. It can basically just, hey, cool guy who gave my wallet back on the train. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll be checking out more of that this weekend because it's um, hopefully if they've got more episodes. But uh, that's everything we have for this week. So we will see you next time. Take care of each other, stay hydrated, and look after yourselves. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.